We're now in this, in this era where what we do in the lab literally is trying to unpick some of that background noise mechanisms, environment noise mechanisms, and one by one try to exert some sort of control and understanding of it so that we can transfer it from that category into the hematonium so that the chicken is no longer just a simple sphere, but it starts to build up some character, some complexity, so that it becomes closer and closer to the actual chicken as we <laughs> understand it and, and, uh, go, uh, and, and uh, simulate it. To clarify, uh, there's no chickens in our lab. There's no chickens in <laughs> <laughs> No animal was harmed in this project. Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics of the Cavendish Laboratory here at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Shimone Sayre-Barker, a PhD student studying experimental physics. And I'm Vanessa Bismuth, looking after communications for the department. Long silver hair in a ponytail, a pair of Converse All-Star, and a Grateful Dell t-shirt. The guest sitting opposite us today in the studio is not your average Cambridge academic. But don't be fooled by his relaxed demeanor. Professor Matea Tature is a serious trailblazer in his field. Co-founder of the Atomic, Mesoscopic and Optical Physics Group at the Cavendish, his groundbreaking work in quantum optics and solid-state physics has earned him accolades and respect worldwide. His experimental research group investigates light-based quantum science to enable future quantum information networks and communication, as well as new applications in sensing. He is an, an elected fellow of the Optical Society of America, the Turkish National Science Academy, the Institute of Physics, and also one of Turkish GQ magazine's Men of the Year 2015, amongst international actors and footballers, and in recognition of his pioneering research in quantum physics. In 2018, he co-founded the successful quantum startup, New Quantum, and now he is looking forward to being head of department here at the Cavendish. His research is driven by an insatiable curiosity and motivated by a desire to see what has never been seen before, which, in the world of quantum optics, is no mean feat. Together with Mete, we talk about striking luck, grasping every opportunity, doing things outside of the cliches, and the power of enthusiasm and curiosity to persevere through the times of pressure and failure. Stay with us. So welcome to the podcast, Mete. Thank you very much. So Mete, this is quite a fun episode for me because although most listeners obviously won't know, you're actually my PhD supervisor. That is um, right. <laughs> and it's not every day that you get to ask people that you work with and usually discuss science with what's made them kind of get to be who they are today. Um, so let's get started. Let's get started. So physicists often like to go back to the very beginning to understand something, right? What's the origin story of how you got here? So we'll do the same for you. Um, kind of what sparked your interest in physics? Was it something that you were always interested in? Um, it started fairly early. Uh, I, was, I was 12 years old uh, when I got, it, uh, I got in contact with physics, when I bumped into the concept in physics. But it's a, it's a funny story. I was, uh, I was good at physics and maths uh, at the time, but I wasn't actually thinking about uh, uh, you know, focusing more than what, what the, the homeworks were or the, the course material required. Um, and this is the time when we were in, in the U.S. actually. My dad was stationed at, at Kiesler Air Force Base. Uh, so we were there for two years. 
the physics teacher in one of the courses, the physics courses, the physics teacher uh, pulled me aside one day after class and said, you're clearly you're able to do this, this course fine, but you're also not engaged with the course much, but you're disturbing the, the students around you. Hmm. Why don't we cut a deal? So she made it. She made an offer that I couldn't refuse. The offer was here are five, six books. I want you to go and read on your own. Don't come to class. And uh, after a week, if you can answer my questions from the books, I give you an A and you don't have to ever show up for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, why not? That sounds great. So I took the offer. But of course, the, the, the other side of the uh, deal is if I'm unable to answer the questions, then I have to sit in the front of the class and participate. And even on topics where, I'm, um, uh, where I understand, then I help the teacher uh, explain for the rest of the class. So I took the challenge. Um, and of course, she knew exactly what she was getting me into. That was the mm-hmm. bait. She picked the right books. It's a relativity and subatomic particles and astrophysics and also other books like uh, Life of Oppenheimer, which is quite trendy now, of course, with the movie. Um, so I got to see the, the human side of science for good and bad and as well as the interesting science topics. I've, I've literally in the course of a week, I fell in love with the topic and, and then I, I met her. And I couldn't answer the questions. So in any case, class. I lost, yes. But she knew exactly uh, what, what she was uh, driving into. So that, that's how it started. That I actually committed myself beyond lecture work uh, for the first time. And I realized that I liked it. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's at the age of 12, 13. I should say 13. And then on, I, uh, in, uh, I, I got drawn into it more and more. She set up a, a second uh, informal class after hours uh, for... For those who are advanced, let's say, in, in, in physics and maths, uh, she took us to competitions, high school competitions and physics and stuff. So it was, it was a commitment from the teacher's side at that age that made me realize that I'm actually enjoying this and I really like seeing myself do physics. So mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I got drawn in. And then after that, it's uh, basically... It just went on forward Just went there. on, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and until that thing. point, um, you were saying that you had just been... Like this happened while you were in the US for two years. But up until that point, you'd been in Turkey. That's right. And you I, said that you're... Um, born and raised in Turkey. Yeah. Until that, those transformative two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you then decided to pursue physics um, at the graduate level at, mm-hmm. at the university. You were back in Turkey then. That's right. Yes. Um, was it at all what you had expected it to be from your books... Um, that all that the books that you read, um... not, not really, of course, because the, the books I read were not hardcore uh, technical books uh, at that age. It's more popularized science uh, concepts. Uh, they were they were important to drag me into the topic, but of course, undergraduate education and, and beyond, uh, that's you know the real nitty gritty. That's the battlefield of science. Mm. Um, so it's not exactly what you think it is, but then if you're so immersed into into the whole learning and finding out about new things, and 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 again, I'll always refer back to this: reflecting from outside, seeing yourself that enthusiastic, that you know, that the curiosity coming out, uh, that drives you, that gives you energy to to learn more, to uh, mm. to commit more. Um, that is the process of the the undergraduate. I was a bit lucky, of course, the uh, the university I attended in Turkey. Uh, had a very small group structure. So we were not large lecture halls, but rather a, a small group of five people or so. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we stuck together, we worked together, we worked till late nights together. It was, that was, uh, it, it was a good, inspiring environment. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, because it can be challenging, right? Physics 
uh, at university or undergraduate level. Um, so what motivated you to stay um, focused and engaged mm. and persevere with when things were really difficult, were getting difficult? Oh, absolutely. In the beginning, in fact, I, I didn't really fit in. Uh, almost everyone in the this was in a group of, say, 10, 15 people, almost everyone knew of each other. We were only a small group that didn't know anyone else. They knew each other from physics Olympiads or other competitions and all that. They, you know, they, they had been doing this for a while mm. uh, and they knew of each other, whereas we were the out, uh, outliers coming in, uh, were the foreigners coming into the, to the physics world, mm. if you will. Uh, and of course, there was the imposter syndrome that immediately came up uh, right away. I had a slightly different background rather than being very, very much STEM focused. My uh, childhood was more geared towards arts, my mom being an artist. Uh, I, I was more inclined towards uh, arts, painting and all that, rather than STEM. STEM switch happened uh, with the US basically at the, uh, at the high school level almost. So I was, I was fairly late coming into, <laughs> into the STEM game, if you will. Uh, so it did, it did feel for it. I felt out of place uh, within the first year. And uh, what made it possible for me to get over it was uh, it was, a, it was a, a conversation with my dad who said, look, I know how excited you are when you're learning new things in, in science and physics. Forget about everything else. Forget about the lectures. Go to the library. Find a book that you think is interesting and re rediscover that joy you get out of learning something new. And just, just focus on that. Maybe don't even go to lectures for a little bit, for a week or so. And just, just focus on, do you still get that joy uh, that pleasure out of learning about physics. If you don't, then we will sit down and rethink. Maybe maybe you need to change subjects. Maybe you need to do something else. But if you do have that joy, hold on to it because that's the thing that's going to get you through. You know, don't don't work, don't compare yourself to someone else. Focus on is this something that I'm enjoying? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And I it actually there was a topic that I was struggling with at the time in the lectures. So I went to the library, found a book that explained it differently. And I enjoyed it and I got to see at the moment, at that time that science can be explained in different ways, not just one way. And that helped me. And I said, okay, well, this is, this is the way I do it and I'm going to carry on. Is that something that you think has, you've kept doing as you've kind of progressed along your career, like trying to see things from different perspectives and see uh, like your, well, your way of doing it, I guess. Absolutely. I think this is, uh, there's always more than one way of doing things, uh, including science. There's more than one way of uh, doing things, including communicating science. So this has had, uh, I would say, strong reflections on the way we write scientific papers in, in our group, you would know, right? Yeah. <laughs> that we, we sit down and we try to explain things in different ways and see which one fits better, which one has builds up a better storyline uh, in, in writing a, even a technical paper. All the way to science communication, public engagement. What is a way to build up a story of, you know, that carries forward what I'm trying to convey as message? without actually making it look like I'm just simply sending you mm. a bullet list of messages. How do, you, how do you present it so that it makes sense and actually inspires people to go a bit beyond, not mm. just here, but to think about it? Yeah, it circles back to finding the joy as well in, in what you're doing and hopefully inspiring that kind of joy to others. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It, it seems to be quite central in the, in the way you do things. I think so. I'm, I'm happy to say, say that. It's, it, you know, this journey is, I mean, it's difficult, just like any other job, you, you could say. You know, there is no easy job. Yeah, but, but being a researcher in, in, in science, for example, is also difficult. You, there's a lot of commitment, time commitment, personal commitment. 
But at the end of it, what drives you should be the joy you get out of it. You should step back. There are many things we do that doesn't give us joy in the course of a day or two, but uh, in your daily life. But in the grand scheme of things, you should really be enjoying the uh, the life that you're, you're leading with the, the science. Hmm. Were there any aspects of physics um, that you found particularly interesting during those those formative years and you know, at the university? Was there where you... Um, you uh, got interested in quantum optics, for example, or was started, that later? Yeah, it's uh, basically, it's uh, again, it's a journey and it's not, uh, it, you can always look back and say, oh yeah, it looks so coherent and so single path. That's exactly you know. how I planned it. Right, exactly. That's yeah. exactly how I planned my life. I'm so glad I achieved all of it. You know, it's not like that. There's no, there's no list that you follow. Uh, and I think we should all admit that it's not, that that isn't even healthy if you, if you manage yeah. to do that. I think there's a lot of chance, there's a lot of luck involved, and a lot of coincidences involved in the process. It was purely coincidental that uh, that my first year project, so our our university required that you do a, a science project in your first year already. My first year science project was on chaos theory and fractals and all that, and that actually I was uh, I was so engulfed in the whole thing that I was looking around for, for fractal structures in nature and all that. It was like, it was, I was really dedicated to it as a topic. So I thought I was going to be a nonlinear dynamics chaos person uh, in the first year, into the second year. And then I said, I will, obviously I'll be a theorist, but I like to understand how experimentalists work. So maybe I do a little uh, summer internship or something in the lab, in the research lab. <clears throat> Just to just to have just to understand the language of these experimentalists, so I can talk to them in the future. And of course, my first task was uh, building a, a water cooling system for a laser. So I was putting in pipes and, and, and screws and stuff like that, which didn't feel like research at all, right? <laughs> Obviously, I was given the uh, uh, you know n- not the most uh, elegant research. And a lot of research is actually like <laughs> finding right. the right but, screw for the right. right. But I mean, there's a lot of, of course, there's, uh, you know, the professor that gave me that task knew exactly what he, w- he was doing again. It, you know, he said, if you don't, if you're not going to enjoy this, don't, don't come into this, <laughs> into this business. Um, so, so that's how I got into realizing that way. Actually, I, I, from there, of course, after the pipes were installed, then I went on to the Raman spectroscopy. I went on to build a little deposition chamber uh, over the course of two years. So that I, I found myself more and more involved in, in experimental research. And I said, actually, you know what? Probably I'm going to be an experimentalist. That's how the switch happened. Mm-hmm. And then in my uh, f- starting my final year, uh, I did a mini project with another professor, uh, Alexander Shmosky. And he gave me, he introduced me to the concept of quantum optics. And that's where it started. I realized, oh, wait a second, this makes a lot of sense. And I think it's one of those things where it's not important really exactly which topic you work on. What's important is that you find a topic that you understand and you can see yourself understand and you can see yourself take on the next unknown, for you at least, for next unknown, and you can overcome it and you can go to the next step. You watch yourself in the, in the journey and you like what you see. If you're able to see that for yourself and you, you like that you, the learning you, the discovering you, then you will continue to invest in that, in that direction. Because mm-hmm. there's no end to good science, right? There's so many different topics that are all interesting. What, what drives you to one is a bit chance. Mm-hmm. So I guess would you say that then it was important looking back that you took the chance to try out all those different things and then find your way of like 
optimizing for, okay, I've tried this and actually I've enjoyed this a bit more than that. And then using that to then guide your path. That's right. You don't want to sit back and wait for chances to happen. You want to create the opportunities where mm-hmm. chances are there. And then ideally, you know, you have the luxury to pick mm-hmm. among multiple opportunities. You have the luxury to pick one over the other. Uh, but you have to do initially create those opportunities. So if even if you're thinking of you becoming a theorist, maybe it is important to try a little bit of experiment on the side just to just to expose yourself to it. Mm-hmm. Or if you if you know you're going to be an experimentalist, maybe do a little theory project on the side just to check what's going on. And so then, what drove you to then pursue your PhD in Boston? Because like I mean, that was not just choosing a topic, but also choosing a different country, a different location. That's right. So um, it, it's at, at the time there was. Uh, uh, basically, we looked at, among my peers as well, we looked at where we could go to and r- try to be competitive in the, in the research arena. Uh, and U.S. was obviously uh, one, of the, one of the places. Funding was a key element. Uh, mm-hmm. U.S. Has a, has a tradition of funding regardless of nationalities and, and backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, whereas uh, U.K. at the moment, of course, is, is more challenging because there's nationality-based uh, it's more restrictive. Europe, there is much fewer funding opportunities, but there are also employment opportunities. So each country provides its own advantages or disadvantages. Uh, for us, U.S. seemed uh, the most straightforward at the time. And within U.S., I applied to a few places that had a name in, in quantum optics or the, the supervisors that had a background in quantum optics. So that's how it ended up. Mm-hmm. And do you think that the experience you said you said before that um, obviously you moved to the U.S. as a kid was that experience of moving around something that then stayed with you as something you wanted to do in the future like the, having been part of that mobility I guess. Yes, I think I think uh, once you start well, my uh, given my dad's occupation hmm. uh, before going to U.S. we moved uh, seven times already. Hmm. So I was I was thirteen, and we had already moved seven times. So right. I was mobile from birth. <laughs> so basically, I knew I wasn't attached to a particular city or. or land uh, and I had no intention of doing that uh, so actually to be fair the longest I've ever lived in one city is Cambridge uh, until Cambridge I never lived anywhere more than seven years so that was uh, so in, in that sense I was chasing what it is I want to do rather than the, the, the location that I wanted mm-hmm. to be in and besides your father who you already said had those key conversations with you as an undergrad were there other particular mentors or people that you kind of turned to that gave you like again, that nugget of wisdom that you needed in that moment, or not really? Um, no, there's always, the, yes, uh, some, some are spontaneous, some are not calculated. It's mm-hmm. not that they, they knew exactly what they're doing. In some cases, they'll say something reflecting from their own personal experiences. And we're quite similar, right? We, uh, a, a new person studying physics will have a lot of similarities, uh, you know, following on the same path as many others who have done in the past. So, Wisdom sometimes is a simple reflection of their own personal experiences. And then you say, ah, that's interesting. What I've done over the years, I can say more generically, is I've, I, I think I'm a good observer. So what I've done is I've taken on, through observation, I've taken on the things that I think uh, resonate with me as, as positive things. I've also noticed things that I don't want to do. Uh, so I've tried to make sure that in, in my life, I tr- I, both in physics and, and general life, uh, I try to avoid those things. So I, I try to have that balance of uh, do's and don'ts through observation. So of course, um, Simone here works with you, so she'll know all about the science that you <laughs> do in the lab. But, but for the rest of us, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your science? Sure. 
in in a nutshell, it's we we study how light interacts with matter uh, at quantum uh, quantum mechanical level at the, at the level of quantum physics. Um, many of this is known; the fundamentals are known, but. Uh, but there's a lot to be discovered when it comes to slightly more complex systems, how light interacts with a slightly more complex matter, how complex light interacts with a more complex matter. Um, and that's where opportunities lie, because some of these are not predictable up front. Some of, some of these emerge as you uh, build up an interaction between light and matter, the emergent uh, phenomena. So we do, uh, we do study how, uh, in a, in a, um, as the systems you're dealing with gets more complicated or more complex, what happens to that kind of a fundamentally simple interaction uh, of light and matter. And then secondary to that is we're looking for uh, whether any of that is useful for future technologies, say quantum technologies, for example, whether we can leverage any of this, this uh, non-intuitive response of the material or, or, or light uh, to, to see if we can make, it, make use of it for future. So in terms of applications, there's obviously the quantum computing that has been um, in the news a lot um, in mm -hmm. the past few years and even even more so recently. Wasn't there a big Google announcement just mm -hmm. yesterday right. or something? Mm -hmm. um, what do you think are the main advantages that make it such an exciting technology? Well, we're now at the stage where um, quantum, certainly in the last uh, 10, 20 years, we're comfortably in the regime where oddities of quantum physics, the counterintuitive nature of quantum physics has, has, is, is no longer trapped in, in thought experiments and, and weirdness of science, but rather actual applicable uh, technology. That's, we're at the brink of that technology now, where the early demonstrators are now available. Uh, quantum computing is the most obvious one, uh, but there's quantum communications networks, quantum sensing, quantum simulators. Uh, these are all different areas where advances have been made, dramatic advances have been made already in the last decade. Uh, so it's no longer an, an oddity or a spooky uh, mm. you know, property of quantum physics that's, that feels odd to, the, the, to us. Uh, it actually is, uh, is, is on, the, on, the, on the way to providing an advantage to how these things function uh, in society. So uh, we are, our group is research group we're not working on quantum computing per se. Uh, in fact, I actually think that quantum computing at this stage uh, should be more with larger companies in industry, essentially in the hands of industry to really push it at a level that requires the marriage of quantum science, device technology, non-quantum uh, aspects, software, all of these have to come together in the most efficient way to push forward, whereas universities remain perhaps go back on quantum computing, go back to more innovative mm. approaches to a you know, definition of a qubit or definition of a, of a protocol, architecture, algorithms, all of those. So I think there's going to be this, there's already happening, this, this switch over uh, for quantum computing. Companies are taking this, this on and they should. Uh, whereas for many other applications, uh, I think there's a lot to do on the academic side, on the university side, in terms of pushing the technologies forward. And going back to the fundamentals again yes, and again. Yes, that's right. It's, uh, there, it, it's, it's almost like, like a little cycle. You pick up a certain uh, concept, you realize it in a material platform, you push this forward as much as you can, and then it either it's, gets picked up by industry, let's say, or, or various applications or engineering, 
at that point, even even if you do succeed at that uh, at that stage, you you go back and say, okay, that technology is going to ultimately have this Achilles heel or a bottleneck. Mm. How can I fix that by going back to the basics? Going and anticipate back to the that happening, board. I guess. Doesn't What's that? I anticipate that. I anticipate that yeah. exactly, exactly. We now have a very interesting ecosystem. It's it's vibrant, energetic, uh, it's funded, uh, and this this ecosystem and, and workforce is uh, we, we we know we know what the questions are. So it's uh, you can see this nice cycle of develop and then go and reinvent and then come back and develop and go and reinvent. So I think this when is you you when you talk about ecosystem and you say we do you mean um, nationally internationally or at your very local level? I mean I mean internationally the yeah. the, the community yeah. the, the the very broad community of quantum science and technology. Yeah. Uh, or quantum science for technology development. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very large community. It's a very fast-growing community as well, mm -hmm. uh, and includes academic partners, includes industry as well. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's an exciting field. I'm actually curious to know, like, do you see a lot of new, like, early career researchers or students coming in um, to quantum because of all this excitement around quantum um, technologies? Yeah, absolutely. And what it, yeah. Absolutely. This is uh, the, the, the interest is certainly there. The push is there from early career researchers coming in. Uh, they are aware. They, they know what's mm -hmm. going on. Uh, and in response, the universities are setting up, uh, for example, advanced courses, master's courses, for example, uh, geared with, you know, thematically geared towards quantum technologies. So mm -hmm. uh, known universities have already established this. Uh, I know uh, ETH in Zurich, for example, they have a quantum technology program. There are uh, centers for doctoral training in the UK, UCL, and, and in the past, Imperial had quantum technology programs. Bristol had, has one. So this is, this is definitely happening now. This is, uh, it's not just an interest, a temporary transient interest. There is an ecosystem building up. Mm -hmm. And speaking about this ecosystem, I mean, in 2018, you co-founded the startup New Quantum alongside one of your then PhD students, Carmen um, mm -hmm. Palacios Berraquero, who serves as CEO. That's right. Um, what was that experience like? Was it the first time that you, you had the opportunity to see your research commercialized or how was it? It was, yes. Well, it was a, it was a roller coaster. Uh, <laughs> exciting, scary, because it's something I've never done before and never even thought of before. And then we we realized, hey, this is actually useful. This could be turned into a patent. And of course, as a, as a scientist, uh, self-labeling as basic sciences and basic research, you don't think of a company, you don't think of patents even, right? Uh, and then once you realize, okay, this is actually a route, and you realize you know nothing about that route, uh, you have to get help. <laughs> you have mm -hmm. to get support. Uh, Cambridge Enterprise is fantastic uh, institution for this. Uh, they're very supportive, very helpful. I knew nothing about it. Carmen had more knowledge, <laughs> and she went more in, in, you know, delved into the into the depths of it at the time. Uh, and I said the only way I would be able to do this is first of all with support, and second, I don't actually lead it. I don't do it because I won't be able to do the, uh, at least personally, I won't be able to do the fundamental science physicist hat and industrialist hat at the same time, or the entrepreneur hat at the same time. Uh, Mainly because the second, the latter part, I have no knowledge of, right? And I guess also running a company is a full-time job. And exactly. You already so have a, one. It's a proper job. I think it would be uh, delusional if an academic said, oh, I'm, I'll carry on with my academic job and I'm going to also run the company full-time uh, on the side as a hobby. I, I don't think that, I don't think I can do it, at least. Uh, others might be able to do it. Uh, so I was very lucky that I, I got to enjoy that, that journey. Uh, but with someone like Carmen, 
uh, who's very suitable for this. Uh, she's fantastic and she's been leading the, the company since. So I act, even though technically I'm the CSO, the chief scientific officer, uh, I'm very much arm's length. I, I give advice, but, uh, but the company floats on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I got in return from this is, I would say, a dimensionality. So I know, I know who I am as a scientist. I know who I am as an academic scientist, as a researcher. Uh, this gave me a, an opportunity to find out who I am in, in that outfit. Mm-hmm. Industry, company, product, what does it even mean? How does it mean? How does R&D mean in an industry setting mm-hmm. versus what you think you know as research and development in an uh, academic setting? So it adds to this, this multidimensionality of, of the person. Yeah, I guess I going think. back to what you said before about when you were thinking that you wanted to be a theorist and learning the language of the experimentalist, it gives exactly. you the language of the industrialist exactly. to some extent. That's a very good analogy. It's always making sure that it's, you know, whatever you are, it's good to have some experience or some perspective of the alternative or the, the other. Uh, and that you can always then create links, synergies mm-hmm. between the two uh, in a way that hopefully helps. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, the impact of your research can only be as good as the impact of what other people are able to then do with it, right? So right. If, you, if they're not going to do anything with it, then it kind of limits that as exactly. well. I mean, exactly. did it change the way that you approached your own research questions or how you approached collaborating with industry, like after you had that experience? Yes, I think I, I realized that I could do it. I, it, it. At the very least, you know, the first thing that changed, I should say, is uh, anytime we come up with something in the lab, I now have a little algorithm mechanism in my mind that mm-hmm. says, is this applicable? Is this relevant? Is this patent? Can you patent it? <laughs> yes, exactly. So is this, would this be worth to, you know, to anyone uh, outside academia? You know, that kind of thing. So, so at least we go through that cycle. And of course, one thing leads to another. We have more patents now. And we're going pursuing along those directions. Uh, the knowledge of the other world, the realm, <laughs> I should say the non-academic realm, uh, helps you steer the way you do your science and, and where you're going to put your efforts. And in turn, um, I think I, I, I enjoy being more efficient in the lab as well. So that's shorter meetings, more, perhaps more uh, uh, keeping, keeping eyes on the prize, the, the more uh, result-focused uh, approach without losing, of course, the, the, the curiosity-driven random walk of science, uh, science research as well. Yeah, it's actually, that leads us nicely to the next question, which was around, we get from that conversation and from our conversation to prepare that uh, interview, um, that you're clearly pursuing, I mean, you're looking for the joy and pursuing your passions. Mm -hmm. Um, What is it about quantum mechanics and quantum science that you find so fascinating? Well, it is, it's the, <laughs> I should say, it's one of the oddest uh, theories we got. So, and it works. And the, the fact that it works, despite being so odd or counterintuitive to daily life, is, is fascinating on its own, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not the only reason. The, uh, what I find amazing is, is actually quite timely right now, and that is that it could be useful. You could actually turn around. So it is visible, tangible, and, and maybe useful. And that's, that makes it quite exciting to see how we can do this. The, um, the way I see everything that we do from various material platforms, two-dimensional materials to properties of light and how we can build a quantum network to uh, little nanodiamonds in live cells to understand how uh, mitochondria behaves or something. All of those, uh, essentially, you're doing one thing. And that is, um, in quantum physics, we typically will write a Hamiltonian 
And the Hamiltonian is the equation of motion, the equation that governs how the system you're interested in functions within the limited knowledge or limited picture that you have. The, you know, the typical saying, uh, the common saying of, uh, let's assume the chicken is a sphere. That's exactly what we do in physics, right? We come up with a simple model for something rather complicated. So what do you do in, in quantum physics is that you, you take a simple model of the actual physical system you're interested in, and then you dump everything else, all the complexity into the, the you know, terms, this decoherence or chaos causing or you know, noise causing terms. And then you say, I have a simple system that is influenced by background noise and environment noise. We're now in this, in this era where what we do in the lab literally is trying to unpick some of that background noise mechanisms, environment noise mechanisms, and one by one try to exert some sort of control and understanding of it so that we can transfer it from that category into the Hamiltonian so that the chicken is no longer just a simple sphere, but it starts to build up some character, some complexity, so that it becomes closer and closer to the actual chicken as we <laughs> understand it and, and, uh, go, uh, and, and uh, simulate it. To clarify, uh, there's no chickens in our lab. There's no chickens. <laughs> <laughs> no animal was harmed in this project. But you see what I mean, right? The, the, we, we, we take a very simple model with a large uh, set of things we don't like or understand, and we try to take turn by turn, mechanism by mechanism, we exert some sort of a control and understanding and bring it into the physical system that we work with. So the system we study is now more complex, perhaps, but better controlled and better understood. Mm. And that's an exciting journey uh, across all activities that we have. And you've, um, you've been a PI for 16 years now. You just said like last year was the 15th anniversary. Correct, yes. And for 16 years in Cambridge now, then that's a that's right. sedentary uh, life, I guess. <laughs> um, how how do you see the balance between like doing the good thorough science um, and the pressures of running a lab and having mm. people um, well to pay and to train <laughs> yes. and to um, and like in, inspire to do good science as well? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it is it's a big challenge, and I don't think. We're ever trained, right? In academia, we're never really trained for the job we will do. We we uh, we demonstrate we're good at something, and then and then we're we're granted access to something completely different. You know, you, you demo like PhD. You demonstrate that you're really good at doing research, so then you're asked to teach as a faculty, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Whereas we never got the training for it, uh, or or manage a team, right? So, uh, of course, you can support yourself in, in ways, but I think mentorship is critical uh, in, these, uh, in these transitions. Um, it is scary to actually be leading a group uh, because it's very human. You get to see, maybe for the first time in full force, you get to see how human science is. It's not just about facts and formulas and, and uh, shiny pieces of kit. It's about how people interact with each other, how they form a team. How do you form a team that works really well? Uh, what do you prioritize? What are, uh, what are the best combinations of people that work well together? What does work well mean? First of all, is this, what, does that mean you have the highest productivity in research output? Or does that mean happiness of the team members working together? Uh, so all of those have to be, you, you have to be aware of all of those and you have to pick. Uh, and that's where the style of the PI comes in. Uh, in terms of running the group. I like to prioritize 
um, overall well-being, happiness of the team, the excitement of the team. The individuals in the team should be able to see why they're doing this, why they're enjoying this, and which which way they're going. And it doesn't mean I don't mean which way, as in what what you know, well laid out research programs, so they know exactly what they'll be measuring, you know, a year down the line. But they need to see that they have control over it and it's going somewhere. That's the that's the principle of it. So I think uh, it, rather than deciding on what the next paper's scientific publications topic is going to be or its title is going to be, I rather leave that bit vague so that the team engages more with the project and they actually lead as much as I anticipate what the next steps are going to be. So you're somewhat of a celebrity on social media uh, with a particularly <laughs> large following from your home country, right. Turkey. Um, and you have like what, 2,000 followers on Twitter or something? 200,000, sorry. Um, so how has it been 300, maintained? 300,000 somewhere. Um, we can check later. Fact check. <laughs> um, but how has it been maintaining a relationship with the science community and society back home whilst working abroad? Has that been something that you like have done very actively or how did your claim to fame, so to speak, come about? <laughs> uh, well, it started with... Uh, with a paper we published that uh, at the time on some fundamental property of light uh, that's squeezing at single photon level. How can it, how can light be at a, at a single photon level and be squeezed at the same time? That was the um, that was a question, theoretical question that we experimentally managed to demonstrate at the end of that, um, and this got picked up by some media, uh, uh, received some media coverage in multiple countries and. Also, it did in Turkey. And once Turkey realized that they discovered that I, I exist, I, I don't think many people knew beforehand. Uh, and that turned into a, you know, once it was in the media, of course, then the, uh, the name became more famous, more, more at least known. Uh, and I took that as an opportunity. First, I, of course, I was nervous. Like, you don't want to be all of a sudden made, you know, known. The paparazzi. That's right, exactly. <laughs> like, what, why is this happening? I'm a physicist. You know? <laughs> why do people know about me? Um, but then, you know, after a period of what's going on, uh, I realized, okay, well, this could, this could be leveraged. I could turn that into a, you know, having a platform for communicating science the way I understand it and how science should sit with society the way, again, the way I understand it. Uh, once I realized that the, the follower group is actually fundamentally early career researchers, students, people interested in science. So it was, it's a good group. Uh, it's, it's 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 a quality group, so I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to reach out to them. So since then, I've been doing I would say 2015 onwards, I've been doing some science communication, public engagement in Turkey quite routinely, uh, and I think it helps because I I do think that there is need for more science communication, particularly in a country like Turkey, um, but also it, the style that I in my perspective the style that I'm putting forward is what science is. To go beyond the cliches and say there are many different ways you can do it pick the one that suits you mm -hmm. and what makes you particularly passionate about nurturing kind of that link to your home um i mean i'm i am from there uh, you know i the, the place i live uh, is is uh, here uk and i'm committed to it the place i was born and grew up is turkey and i'm committed to it um, so if i can contribute i'm more than happy to do so anyways um, between UK and, and Turkey, I think UK has more luxury mm -hmm. in the sense that there are there are many people who are doing this, which is great. And I'm happy to do my part for it. I see a bit more urgency with Turkey. 
Uh, and I guess personally, the impact you can have is much larger there because of the, you already have that platform. That's right, exactly. So mm -hmm. I'm leveraging that. Yeah. But yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess early career researchers in particular often talk about how mobility is such a key kind of mm -hmm. lever to have when you are trying to find out all about all those different opportunities in that in pursuing an academic career. But of course, that can come at the sacrifice of constantly, you know, changing your community, having to leave, course, go yeah. back and um, keep changing your sense of home every time you get a new job. So how have you managed that sort of identity balance during your life when you were moving around? I mean, I guess you grew up moving around a lot, but it's still different to, to keep doing it forever. <laughs> That's um, right. So how has that been for you, I guess? It's a, I mean, it's, it is a journey um, and it has its advantages and disadvantages. The, you end up having a lot of friends across the globe, effectively. Um, you also don't have that uh, absolute rooted belonging to one one place. Uh, so I noticed that. Uh, but that's that makes you more flexible. That makes you, uh, again, it goes into this multidimensional aspect of it. Mm. I have done science in the US. I've done science in Europe. I can take the good sides of both of those and the things I would like to avoid in both of those uh, styles. Uh, and there's no one way to do science again. Uh, so you can combine those two and, and get a, um, get a, you can synthesize something else. In the same spirit of, uh, in the same spirit, I, I approach my life as well. I, I'm, I've not lived in Turkey for a very long time, but I've never lost contact. So I do visit frequently, I have friends there. Uh, it's so much easier now with uh, internet, social media, mm. Zoom, WhatsApp and all that. Uh, when I moved for PhD, we were writing letters and posting it with stamps. So <laughs> if I managed to keep in contact, you know, then <laughs> today is not a problem. And I think I would very much, very much encourage mobility. Uh, I, I like people to move around, travel, experience cultures in different places, science cultures specifically for our topic, but also just general living cultures in different countries, different places, because there is a lot of variation and that's good to experience them so that you don't, you don't think of, you don't approach things from only a single perspective as truth, but rather, or right, mm. but rather you always consider that there are multiple ways of doing things and you pick. <laughs> is that something that you're gonna um, aspire to, um, to do as, it, as you were just about to um, take on the role as a new head of department um, at the Cavendish. Um, what are you most excited about in this new job? Um, it is, it's a big job, first of all. So the first uh, rule, rule number one, don't fail. I think that's going to be <laughs> my first thing. <laughs> I'll make sure we don't fail. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's, I'm, I'm very honored that uh, our community decided that this is, uh, that they're, they're happy with my leadership for this uh, at such a time. Uh, it is, it's an exciting time because it's a, it's a period of transition. We're moving to a brand new building, the Ray Dolby Center. That's fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Um, new faculty have arrived with with uh, a lot of new names uh, on board. It's it's time of change and time of transition. So uh, if I can have any impact, hopefully positive impact at a time of change, I think that that would be great. I'll be very happy with that. And I think this approach of saying there is more than one way of doing things mm -hmm. would fit quite well with this transition where we can actually try out things and see what works best for our community. So I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much for um, being with us. Thank you for having me on board. It's a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you. 
Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Meta's group's research at www.quantum.cam.ac.uk. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish Laboratory, please go to the website www.phy.cam.ac.uk and tag us on social media with hashtag people doing physics. This episode was recorded and edited by Chris Brock. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics. See you next month.